Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Welcome to Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Mandy Rhodes, the editor of Holyrood, and in a week when footballers lost a game but won the moral high ground, I'm joined today by Holyrood journalists Andrew Learmont and Jenny Davidson. So we're going to kick about our thoughts on a week in which the Prime Minister has managed to score several home goals over his hypocrisy over racism, face masks and foreign aid. I've also interviewed Professor Linda Bald, Chair of Public Health at Edinburgh University, who we'll hear from later on what next for the pandemic and indeed for us all. And one of the strong lines from that interview with Professor Bald is how the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses in global resilience because of deep-seated inequalities. Now clearly we've got some real issues with inequalities here and how the pandemic has affected people in Scotland and I'm certain that we will pour over those and the reasons for that in the inquiries to come. But it really put into stark relief the absolute inhumanity last night of a UK government that votes to slash the foreign aid budget just when the most unequal of people really need it. In fact, the Prime Minister himself contradicted his own actions when he talked in the Commons about the world enduring a catastrophe, the kind of which we only ever see happen perhaps once in a century, and then uses that very crisis to justify slashing life-saving aid, arguing that the UK couldn't afford it. It's 1% of what this government borrowed last year. 1%, which really should shame Britain. Andrew and Jenny, I mean, what did you think of last night's debate? I I was just appalled. I mean, I, I just think it's it's disgusting at this time. You know, just at the, the G7, you know, Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, was talking about being one of the richest countries and how we need to take the lead and how we need to encourage other countries to, he was talking about climate change, but investing in climate change, which um, was coming out of the aid budget anyway, the, the 11.6 billion he announced then. You know, talk, he's, he knows we're a rich country. He knows we need to play our part. And, you know, as Theresa May was saying, you know, this is going to be children dying. This is going to be children without education. This is going to be slavery. I mean, it has huge consequences. It is just appalling. And even if we think purely in self-interest, it's a complete own goal. It's, you know, as you've mentioned in a, you know, football analogy or, you know, shooting ourselves in, <laughs> well, the, you know me. in the foot. To, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. Uh-huh. love a football analogy this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, when you think of climate change, when you think of vaccine rollout, when you think of, you know, mass migration of people having to leave their, their countries because of poverty, droughts, wars, um, floods, whatever it may be. You know, if the government wants to tra- tackle immigration, it, it should be thinking about economic development in the, in the countries and, and security in the countries that people are coming from. Yeah, and I think, you know, Andrew, Linda Bald made it very clear to me that we should remember that none of us is safe in this pandemic from this virus until everybody is safe. And yet here we are just slashing budgets um, to those that need it most. Absolutely. So it's a four billion reduction in aid from I think it's zero point seven percent to zero point five percent of gross national income, and it's going to last for for years to come. Um, you know, uh, uh, this was 
it's important to remember this was a, a manifesto commitment for the Tories in both 2017 and 2019. Um, I think what's been really staggering is just the, the criticism from every living former Tory prime minister. You know, we talked about the Theresa May, so David Cameron, who, who, who put the pledge into law, said, you know, um, he was sorry and saddened, called it a grave mistake. You would John Major said it's so the the stamp of Little England, not Great Britain. You know, he, he said that you know it seems we can afford a national yacht, but no uh, one either wants or needs. Whilst cutting help to some of the most miserable and destitute people in the world, so it's been a really, um, yeah, uh, really. As Jenny says, it's quite upsetting. It's a kind of salutary lesson, isn't it, in what the Tory party are, I guess. I mean, when you've got Theresa May, who we'll all remember, once said that the the Tory party was in danger of being called the nasty party and indeed being the nasty party, and she's the one (laughs) criticising her successor for doing this. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And I think we shouldn't forget that the Scottish MPs uh, MPs played their part in that. Indeed, yeah, I think it it is shocking that not one of them Rebelled. I mean, when you when you look through the list of, of um, MPs who did rebel, there's you know some of maybe been called the the usual suspects. Some of the people who tend to to vote by conscience, you know, and and will sometimes vote against their own party if they genuinely think the Conservatives are wrong. And and you see that that list there again yesterday, and not one of them was from Scotland. Not one of the the MPs representing a Scottish constituency voted against the party and. You know, and I think that says a lot. One person who's not usually suspect is, is Theresa May. She said that she yes. has never in her entire 25 years in the Commons voted against her party and voted against a three-line whip until the vote on, on Tuesday night. Yeah, I think the you know it is having resonance, and predictably because our prime minister has form in this. Um, last night's vote prompted the emergence of a whole series of quotes from the prime minister that he'd made in his previous life as a journalist, and they certainly don't make for pleasant reading within the context of what they voted on. Quotes, for instance, he made about Africa in the Spectator when he said the continent may be a blot, but it is not a blot in our conscience. The problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we are not in charge anymore, or on Uganda when he wrote about little AIDS-ridden choristers, or when he talked about watermelon smiles of the Congolese and the Queen loving the Commonwealth because it supplied her with flag-waving piccaninnies. Asked about those quotes in Parliament by the SNPZ in Blackford today, and the PM said they were taken out of context. I mean, I'm not sure what context could ever make them anything other than racist, but there we go. (laughs) Andrew, what did you make of all of that? Yeah, so um, obviously uh, at the start of the tournament, so this all stems from at the start of the tournament, you had the England football players taking the knee and their fans, a sizable chunk of their fans booing them. So in a few friendlies before the tournament and at the start of the tournament, no, it's worth pointing out by the end of the tournament, those boos were absolutely silenced. Um and you had a number of leading politicians ask the Home Secretary and was asked, you know, a number of times at the start of the tournament if she would criticise fans who booed the, the team for taking the knee. And she said, no, that's a choice for the fans, uh, frankly. You, you had the, the Prime Minister's spokesman, you know, saying it was a, a gesture, a gesture of politics. But you, know, you fast you fast forward three weeks to the, uh, the the final where England lost in penalties and three players in particular, uh, Bukayo Sacco, Marcus Rashford, and, and, and you know Jans and Sancho, they all missed penalties. Three young black players, and they've been subjected to some horrific abuse on on, on social media. Um, yeah, dreadful. 
Mm. Which then led Patel to seeing the abuse was vile. You know, she said there's no place in our country, uh, which then led to this, uh, I think, astonishing um, rebuke from Tyrone Mings, who's a defender for the England team, who said, you know, you don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism message as gesture politics, you know. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, and actually Steve Baker, who is was um, a huge Brexiteer uh, and pretty well a kind of strong man, he admitted that this could be a decisive moment for the party. And I, I guess I would say that any fight that is Boris Johnson versus Marcus Rashford, I suspect there's only one winner. And that's what's making the Tories nervous. Yeah, and, and I mean, there were these the terrible comments as well about Marcus Rashford should stick to football and, you know, stop getting involved in, in politics, which, you know, completely backfired. I mean, obviously, people were rightly appalled by, by those kind of comments. I mean, the idea that, you know, he, he would have missed a penalty because he was asking for children to be fed, something that politicians themselves should have been taking care of without his help really it shouldn't have actually been necessary for him to be involved in that in the first place mm-hmm. um but there we are and yeah so i mean I, th- I think that the whole thing has actually has backfired very badly in the government because um we we've got this situation where these guys are are you know absolute heroes and being seen as that and being widely defended and then you're you're actually seeing these young player i mean they're they're boys really I mean, they're really mm-hmm. in teenage boys they're not even you know adult men being being attacked and and the government having been seen to support that and then all too late try and charge in and and, and change their tune it's really interesting for me when you look at the um the uk government cabinet and it, there are a number of people of colour within that cabinet, including the Home Secretary. I just wonder how they personally feel about this kind of row. Yeah, I mean, it, there, there's this, this strange kind of hypocrisy that, that's going on in, in so many policies. And, and, you know, the other issue that we've been talking about, obviously, is is um, immigration and the, and the boats coming over from France and the fact that people are going to be... Um, potentially criminalised for, for helping someone who's who's drowning. Um, and this kind of, yeah, pulling up the ladder behind you of, you know, these government ministers who are actually second generation, who are the children of immigrants, now saying immigration is a terrible thing and we shouldn't have anyone come to this country. We must do something about it. And, you know, and, and stoking racism when surely they themselves and their families and their communities have also been the victims of that. It's like they, they have split personalities or something. You know, they have a sort of government policy personality that doesn't link to who they are in, in real life. Yeah, you'd like to get behind that mask, which is probably our segue into the other side of this, which is the hypocrisy that sort of runs through lots of things. And I think as we get towards what Boris has called Freedom Day on Monday, there's the whole controversy about wearing masks or not wearing masks. Um Andrew, <laughs> you've just experienced COVID, and we've all been obsessed. It's a bit kind of COVID porn in this office, isn't it? <laughs> uh, want to know all the details. I mean, can, can you just kind of run through how you felt over the last few weeks and how you feel now when there's this chat about people not wearing masks um, on public transport, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh 
I think it was actually my last appearance on the, the Hollywood podcast where I mentioned that my daughter had a bit of a cough and we're going to get her a COVID test. I was joking about how we're going to ruin everyone's summer holidays. And uh, and we did. We ruined yeah. everyone's summer holidays and uh, and mine as well. Um, it, it, there was three of us in the house who caught COVID. Um, uh, my daughter, who's 10, she basically had a, a, a bit of a cough one day and a couple of low-key energy days uh, and then was fine. Um, her mum was uh, not particularly great was a bit sore but then was fine but me i had a real no i didn't have real bad but i had a real bad compared to those other two i'm no um i you are was, a man Andrew. i am a man i was waiting for you to say that i was <laughs> kind of expecting that comment to come uh um, I, yeah i just i spent i spent a, a good few days in bed just unable to move or concentrate you know when i first got my positive test i was like oh i'll get a few days off work i'll be able to watch a couple of box sets and then no that didn't happen it was sore it was painful um but it was over in a few days uh but what's happened since then is i've been absolutely exhausted um just i've had so many days where i've had to stop what i'm doing and, and, and go and have a, a wee nap uh, if I've done anything strenuous, like go for a shower or walk up the stairs, um, it's better now than it was. Uh, I also um, uh, can't smell anything um, or taste anything, which isn't great. Um, so that's been what two weeks of that. Yeah, it's been it's been yeah. three weeks now since weeks, my yeah. uh, my positive diagnosis, um, my positive test. Yeah. So it is it is a little bit alarming, the, the idea that we're going to have this great reopening. I think we saw today the Netherlands, you know, number of positive cases has increased by 500% since they got rid of restrictions. I, I think it's very likely that we're going to see something similar here. Yeah. I mean, Jenny, the thing I think that alarmed all of us when we were listening to Andrew over the three weeks was um, I, the thing that got me more than anything was when Andrew said he was scared. I th- yeah, I think it, it's it's that thing if you don't know how it's how bad it's going to be. And even if you've had a vaccine, I mean, I think people forget, even if you've had a vaccine, you can still be seriously ill. You don't know how long you're going to be ill for. You know, you could, you could have long COVID for the next year or you might just be ill for the next fortnight. You know, and particularly when it comes to breathing. I mean, I, I haven't had COVID, so I haven't experienced this. But yeah, the, the idea of, of not being able to to breathe or struggling for breath must be, I'd imagine, one of the, the scariest things. And actually, that's the point, Andrew. You had had one vaccination. Mm, yeah, I had one dose of the AstraZeneca. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know if that meant that when I did get COVID, it was only lasted a few weeks rather than than was much worse than it could have been. Um, but it is it's terrifying that so that there's still quite a lot of people who've only had one vaccine. There's still quite a lot of people who have had no vaccines. Um, and as it happens, on the week I uh, uh, had COVID, I think the week before, Andrew Marr was on TV saying that he did COVID despite having two vaccines. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, we still have the disease. And there's, it's, it's incredible how much we still don't know about it and what the long-term effects of it are going to be. Well, that's probably a, a nice, easy way into the interview that um, we're going to hear with Linda Bald. But, I mean, that was one of the things that she and I discussed, the, the public health messaging that hasn't quite got through, that people think once they've been vaccinated, they're almost immune, which is completely erroneous. <laughs> you know, it may well help you not experience the terrible effects of COVID, but it doesn't mean you're immune. And she kept stressing the point and will keep stressing the point during the interview that you'll hear about the very um, 
easy things we should be doing, which is uh, wearing a face mask and washing our hands. So we'll listen to that now. Linda, I was um, feeling this week that we should all be feeling a little bit optimistic. We've got Boris Johnson announcing Freedom Day next Monday, and the First Minister will make her own announcements today about the restrictions and what will be lifted um, for Scotland. And I was struck as I was reading an interview you did with Holyrood Magazine uh, in April, in fact, where you said that you were quite optimistic about the next six months. Do you still feel like that? Well, I've tried to remain optimistic throughout. I think we have seen several bumps in the road since April, um, particularly with the with the Delta variant, which has obviously caused more problems than we anticipated. But I'm I'm still hopeful that the vaccines are certainly having a phenomenal effect. Um, we seem to be, uh, you know, having weakened the link between people testing positive and going into hospital and the mortality from this disease. Um, but we perhaps not, we've, we've moved more slowly than I anticipated. And we've also seen a bigger surge linked to, to opening up than really any of us would have anticipated. And that's obviously caused concern, but I'm hoping the declines we've seen in the last week are, are maintained. When we talk about the vaccine and we talk about that being the game changer, for you looking back, perhaps not as far back as March 2020, but what did you think would be the game changer? Was it always a vaccine? Actually, I've always think, thought there were two things that would be a game changer looking internationally. The vaccine was definitely the main one, and that is so the vaccines, the portfolio we have, are a phenomenal achievement. But the other mechanisms was could we use robust public health measures to try and minimise the harm from this virus in the way that a number of other countries did. And I think we've had mixed success there. So we've relied more on the vaccines um, than on the public health response for a variety of reasons, also to do with just the geography of the UK and its connection to other countries. Um, but those are the, the two things. But there, I think what's really driving our success, if we can get there now, is the vaccine programme. So when you say things are going a little bit slower than you might have imagined, is that around the vaccine rollout? Do you wish that we could just, I mean, just get the population vaccinated, basically? Well, I think when I said more slowly, I meant in terms of the reduction in cases. I think I'd ex I hadn't expected that we would have, for example, been up at over 400 cases or 4,000 cases a day, 10 to 12 days ago, that the modelling from the ONS infection survey would suggest that in the previous period, one in 100 people in Scotland had the virus. That's not where we wanted to be. In terms of the speed of the vaccine programme, of course, we would all hope that it had would have gone more quickly. I think it's gone really well. The milestones that we've set have largely been met. But I think that we had intended to give everybody, all adults over the age of 18, a first dose by the 19th of July. And we're still about half a million people away from that. Uh, so there's, there's a way to go. Are you worried about people not wanting to have the vaccine? Um, less than might have initially been intended. If you look at the surveys that were um, delivered and also a study from the University of Glasgow around the end of last year when we began to be hopeful that we would have licensed vaccines or um, vaccines approved for emergency use, you can see that confidence in the vaccines has gone up in all age groups since we began to roll out the programme. But you still have a small proportion of people who are either hesitant because they don't want to take it or they're hesitant because they foresee practical barriers to being vaccinated. And you can also see from the data that Public Health Scotland produced that there is a gap based on ethnicity and deprivation 
although that gap has been narrowing. Uh, so it's not as straightforward as everybody just rushing and saying, yep, I'll have it. And on the public health messaging, is there a misinterpretation by some people that they think if they get vaccinated, that's them completely immune to getting COVID? And I think, yes, I think there is two areas of misperception which have been partially driven by communication um, by policymakers or by the media. Um, the first thing, I think there's been a huge emphasis on the vaccine programme at UK level, but also in Scotland, as our route out of the pandemic. And because of that emphasis, and because of what are really good research results from the original trials and from real world studies, the simple message has been interpreted by the public as, you know, the, these will be almost perfect vaccines, they will give me protection. So there's still a misunderstanding that the vaccines don't provide 100% protection. There's also a misunderstanding around the fact that people who've had both doses of the vaccine 14 days afterwards, that some of those people sadly will still develop this disease and will die from this disease. And in fact, when you have almost everybody in the population double vaccinated, the people who die from COVID-19 will have had both doses of the vaccine. And that's caused a lot of fear. I don't think that the communication around that has been as clear as it could have been. I mean, at the end of the day, people are always going to die of something, aren't they? Is this just something that will now become part of our lexicon? Yes, I think so. And it means that people who will die with COVID-19, unfortunately, will be still, you know, age-related, vulnerability-related, um, and they will have the virus, but it may not always be the only reason why they're ill and in hospital and sadly pass away. Um, so it is going to be endemic. We'll live with it and it will continue to be a threat. It will be far less of an immediate threat than it is at the current time. So in terms of the tools, if you like, in our toolbox to fight this, I mean, we've talked about the vaccine and the kind of emphasis on that, but things like masks and hand washing. I mean, I, I laughed actually when you, you, you talked about the fact that people should be surprised that they might have to continue washing their hands as if they wouldn't have done it before. Uh, it seems bizarre to me that. Yeah, I mean, these are non-pharmaceutical interventions that are the bread and butter of public health. And it's really boring. I mean, on the hand washing, we can joke about it because I think we, we now have a generation of young, much younger children <laughs> who you see the videos of the little children thinking that, uh, you know, um, something that's used to wash the plants in the garden is actually a hand uh, sanitizer dispenser and they put little hands underneath it. I mean, I just think that's brilliant. So there's behavior change there. But on things like face coverings, that is actually a big shift for us. We've not worn them in the UK. And if you look at the ONS social impacts survey, it's very clear on other surveys that people have genuinely embraced that and recognize the vast majority of people, the value of them if worn properly. Um, but the it's less sexy to talk about non-pharmaceutical interventions, bread and butter public health, than it is to talk about new drugs, i.e. vaccines. Is that partly because we all want a quick prescription, we want a quick solution to something and a drug tends to give us that, but actually you've been in this business for a long time and understand the kind of, if you like, as you said, the non-sexy things are the things that might work better over the longer term. Yeah, there's two things there. I think we live in a society where, um, you know, we value the NHS, it's been a huge success, and we expect evidence-based treatments to be available to us free because we are privileged to have those in the UK. So yeah, the idea, and you see this with antimicrobial resistance and antibiotics, people just expect to be able to be given something to make them better uh, and we're expected to take it up. 
But on the other hand, um, what we should be doing is looking at behavior. And behavior change is difficult. And it's also something that often needs to be maintained over the longer term. So is that much trickier stuff around the environment and behavior that people don't always understand as well and is more difficult to achieve? You've said previously that politics is always wrapped up, if you like, in public health. It is political. Is that because you can give the messages, you can say what you think people should do, the politicians have to implement it, and as a naturally liberal country, we perhaps don't like to be told what to do? That's correct. So public health is political because it's about the whole population. That's what public health focuses on, the health of the population. And in order to support the health of everybody rather than just me or you, we often need changes at the environment level. So that's policy. We need to change things, opportunities, structures around people. And that's tough. And can be very unpopular because, as you say, in a liberal democracy, not maybe to the same extent as in North America, but we've been brought up with this expectation that, you know, if you work hard enough and you do X, Y and Z, the economy can help you succeed or you'll have the opportunity to succeed, even though people know there are inequalities. So it is about individual liberty, a lot of what we live with. And the problem is that public health interventions often get in the way of that. It, it prevents me from doing something I want to do in order to protect others. And that's really tough. Generally, how have you felt that the population has dealt with this? I mean, how have you felt as a public health professional being able to stand back and look at what we've accepted and what we've done? Oh, I think it's been phenomenal. <clears throat> I think we've shown amazing resilience and also ability to engage in behaviour change um, to a level that I didn't expect. I think there was a lot written early in the pandemic about we wouldn't behave like Southeast Asian countries. We couldn't tolerate these kinds of restrictions in the long term. Uh, we wouldn't look out for other people because we were selfish. You know, all of those things have been proven not true. Not not in every instance. There's plenty of examples of rules being broken, people being careless, people being selfish. Um, but generally, if you look at the data from all the surveys and studies that have been done, most people have just tried to survive, get through this, and also to recognize that they have to look out for others. And I think, you know, I'm pretty skeptical about whether we will learn the lessons of that massive national behavior change experiment uh, but i hope we will but regardless we still have appalling results in the end and i mean for you i guess the converse side of all of that is people outside the uk looking in aren't looking at us in a very favorable fashion no not at all i mean i don't think that the uk has handled this pandemic well generally, despite the best efforts of many, many people working in the system, including well-intentioned policymakers. And there's a whole variety of reasons for that that will be poured over by the inquiries. Things historical about not being prepared for the right pandemic, exceptionalism, thinking that the UK situation was different, unwillingness to decouple our connections with other countries that we normally travel to, um, and then also just recognizing that scaling up things like testing, contact tracing quickly were required. And even some of the behavioral interventions like face coverings, we were slow to adapt. So the big successes have been, you know, the, the science base of the UK's research community, the vaccine development, um, testing at scale once we got around to actually doing it properly. Um, but some of the other things I think, haven't. And then the final point I would make is that what we're living with is a legacy of inequalities and poor health in our population that has made some of our communities in Scotland 
far more vulnerable to this virus, unable to escape it, unable to be protected, not having enough resources um, and having underlying health conditions that made them, you know, made, made it, if they came into contact with the virus and became unwell, made it far more likely that sadly they would, would die with COVID-19. And that's just a reality. I want to come back to the inequalities in a minute, Linda, but just on when things have gone wrong, is it because the politicians have not followed the science? I think that's true to some extent. If we just focus on UK level, I would point in particular to the advice from the from SPY-B, the Behavioural Science Group, which we know consistently hasn't been followed always, including in this latest period as we look towards uh, July 19th at England level, where they, their paper on how to support longer-term behaviour change, you know, none of it seems to be in the playbook. So there hasn't always been following the science. I also think there's not always been consensus amongst the scientific community, and there was a lot of things that were unknown. But the problem is there is never a single science. Uh, you know, you have to try and find consensus with competing narratives. Um, and I think it's been difficult for 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 policymakers to always do that. And then at other times, they've just had to deal with, uh, the Scottish government talks about the four harms. The other harms have taken precedence sometimes over just protecting public health. And that's a tricky balance they have to strike. But as again, as a public health professional, if you look at an island, surely it's a perfect case scenario that you just shut it down and contain what you've got on the island. And we didn't do that. That's right. And we could have done it. And we could have been more like New Zealand or Taiwan, Vietnam, Singapore, South Korea. And I think early on we didn't because we didn't recognise that those countries were following a better path. Um, and also we're just used to being very interconnected. So the, I think decisions made early in the pandemic are something that in a pandemic preparedness committee, which the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government will establish, will be trying to learn from. And I just hope that, you know, that those lessons are captured and, and not lost. So that if we do face another crisis like this, which we will hopefully not soon, but again in the future, we can be prepared for the right pandemic. Yeah, I was about to say that inherent in what you said was um, basically, was this not the big one then? Oh, I think there will be others. Whether it will be in our lifetime, we don't know. But given what's happening with the environment and the crossovers between animals and humans in terms of disease, we need to think about a One Health agenda. Um, I, I think, you know, all the scientists say, and this is not my area of expertise, but my colleagues who know more about that, it seems highly likely there will be future ones. Yeah. And just on New Zealand in particular, because, you know, everybody has become an expert these days, so we all know something small about everything. Um, is New Zealand basically going to open up and be open to having to try and deal with a pandemic that that they're behind on compared with the rest of us? Yeah, so that's actually the point. I, I was in the back of my mind when you asked me the former question. These countries that I pointed to that were a success early on in 2020 and to some extent in 2021, some of them are now struggling in the face of two things, Delta and other variants um, that they that you know is, are more transmissible. And once they get in in small numbers, they spread quickly. Or secondly, being behind, not as being fully protected in terms of vaccines. So the challenge for somewhere like New Zealand, and I, I certainly wouldn't hold them up as the only success story. They have characteristics we would not have been able to follow. But um, these other countries I mentioned, um, they, they really need to ramp up their vaccine program. Otherwise, they're going to be not able to be open for quite some foreseeable future um, and have consequences associated with that.
Because basically their situation was almost putting everything on hold, waiting for a vaccine, really, wasn't it? Well, I think they would argue that social and economic life within the country returned to something like normal. But in terms of their international trade links, families being, pardon me, cut off from others overseas, those were all horrible things. But a lot of other things continued as before. Just on the inequalities issue, because I mean, people have even raised the idea that there's almost a, a kind of Scottish effect, a bit like people used to talk about the Glasgow effect, that trying to understand why we perhaps weren't dealing with certain health issues in a certain way. What do you think the Scottish government needs to learn about inequalities in Scotland that it might not have quite understood before? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think that the non-communicable diseases, the legacy of those that we have in Scotland, cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, etc., a lot of which are caused by preventable risk factors. We really need to take a long, hard look at those. And the big one, of course, the big epidemic is overweight and obesity. You know, two-thirds of Scots being overweight and obese. I was born in 1970. That situation has developed in my lifetime. And, you know, it's not as if everybody woke up in Scotland and decided their diet would change. These are environmental. It's about the food system. So for goodness sake, if we can do one thing, let's take a long, hard look at that. And then, and then of course, that's more common in more deprived communities. Um, and then the, just the, the other aspects of inequality about people not being able to self-isolate, about you know having higher density and poor quality housing that means there's crowding and poor ventilation. I hope those are things that will be considered. I mean, it's interesting that that might almost be a public health silver lining that's come from this, that we wake up to the obesity issue. But on that in particular, Linda, I can remember reading a survey of doctors saying that raising issues about obesity with patients was one of the most embarrassing and hardest things for them to do. So given we've come through a pandemic, given we've seen that people respond to public health messages when they need to, what would you suggest we do around obesity? Well, there's two levels. There's the individual and the population. I mean, I've trained GPs with the Royal College of General Practitioners and Cancer Research UK on brief interventions around weight. And once doctors know the kinds of conversations they can have, actually, they can do it. And there's a good quality trial to show that they can, if they have enough time, I emphasize. But the bigger bang for the buck is at the population level. It's actually not about all about poor choices. I think what we need to do is make healthy food more affordable, make unhealthy options more expensive, remove, you know, pretty extensive marketing of these unhealthy food products. Um, those are some of the interventions that the Scottish government can do. And weight management services generally would be part of that as well. And then final point is look at early years. You know, childhood obesity in Scotland in the most deprived communities is accelerating. And there must be more that we can do there. In terms of a public health crisis and an epidemic like the pandemic like this, is this what you train for kind of all your life? Is this, are you in this strange world where this is your nirvana and also just the most hellish time? Well, I suppose all of us working in public health and I, you know, I hold the oldest chair in public health in the UK, which I feel very privileged, um, you know, to be in that role. Um, None of us working in public health or epidemiology or related fields expected this to happen now. Um, so we, yes, we have trained for it basically all our careers uh, to try and communicate to the public about what is public health, why does it matter and what does it mean? Because it's not really, as I said before, I don't want to use the sexy word again, but it's not necessarily an appealing topic. And when I te teach medical students, um, 
you know, in, in teaching them public health pre-pandemic, I might have a small group at the front of the lecture hall who looked really quite interested, engaged, and would ask questions. A lot of them really didn't see it as an area they would want to move into. I think that's shifted because of this experience. Um, but, you know, I don't think, is it a nirvana? No. If I, if I could go back to the beginning of 2020 and, and, you know, have a crystal ball or a magic wand and prevent any of this from happening, of course, that's exactly what I would do. Even though, um, I think it's challenged all of us working in this field to try and work as hard as we possibly can and be the best that we can be to try and assist. But yeah, I, I wish it never happened. What have you learned yourself about it, about you in, in particular? So the first thing is normally within public health, I work in what's called health improvement rather than health protection. So that's non-communicable disease. So I've had to shift to really a new area for me, even though I've always done behavior change research, which is tied up with this pandemic. So I've had to absorb a huge amount of information, reading new studies every day, including in disciplines that I'm not trained in. So that's been a big, big challenge. And actually, I feel I've learned a lot from that. And then there's just the resilience to do the sheer uh, number of hours that all of us have had to put in um, since last spring. It's and, and because of I've been doing science communication, the requests are absolutely relentless every single day. Do you feel you've had time to actually process, to stand back and think, God, what have we gone through? Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think it's one to ponder on. Probably not. I think all of us, I speak to my colleagues in Public Health Scotland, in the NHS, Scottish government, I suppose, as well. Nobody's really had time to think. But I think occasionally I've been on, you know, on a walk or whatever and thought how much life has changed and also about my priorities. What, what do I want to focus on in my research and my work and, and my colleagues in the future? And I actually think those have shifted slightly. So maybe for everyone, there's surveys on this actually, the pandemic has provided people with an opportunity to, to reflect um, on what they, if they have those opportunities, what they want life to be like post-pandemic. Um, so I think a lot of us will be taking a long, hard look at not only ourselves, but society around us. And when we spoke to you back in April, as I said, you you were talking about you were optimistic for the next six months. How do you feel about the next 12 months? Well, I still feel optimistic because I think that the vaccine programme, you know, where we are will mean that and even the changes that are happening now in terms of opening up, being able to contemplate international travel with vaccine certification and testing. I think we will be in a much better position in the coming months. I'm still worried about the winter, as is everybody, and the NHS and also other viruses that will come surging back. But we're a strong, resilient, fortunate country. Um, and I think that we, you know, we still have a very bright future, but we'll have to pick up the pieces and support the communities that have suffered the most um, as we look ahead. And that's the, new, that's the new challenge. Two things. Let's prepare for the next time a crisis like this happens and learn from it. And let's focus on recovery and be very clear about what what we want to achieve and what kind of Scotland we want to live in in the future. And a new normal, what's what's that going to look like? I mean, people keep saying to me, hey, when will this be over and when can we go back to being normal? Do you think those are two different things? Well, when will it be over is, so pandemics don't end with a bang, they end with a whimper. You know, we all of us, I think now have done a bit of reading on where I have previous pandemics. So we'll gradually be less of a threat. We're already in that period when it's easing out. Um, so there's not going to be a date when it's over. It'll just gradually, you know, 
evolve. Um, in terms of will things be the same? No, I think some things will change forever. I think the small things I would point to are around more people working from home if they have the resources and the opportunity, the use of technology. If you speak to tech companies, you know, they were banging on the door of government and other agencies for years to ask them to use some of the technology they developed. They would, were really resistant to change, including example in primary care. Um, so we're going to be using that. And then I think we'll be thinking long and hard about some of the travel, unnecessary travel that we do. Um, and as I say, my personal hope is that we focus on some of the other population health priorities. I don't know to what extent we'll achieve that, but I, I really hope we can. What do you think? I mean, just finally, I guess, it's it, what do you think as a society we've lost in all of this? And, and have we gained anything? Well, we've lost a huge amount. We've lost, uh, you know, cumulative. Yeah, we've lost. Well, we've lost lives, uh, loved ones, and let's never forget, you know, uh, the over ten thousand people in Scotland who've lost their lives because of this disease and are still losing their lives and will in the future. Um, the second thing is we've lost opportunity in education for our, our young people, and that is a very serious thing. We all—it's not just parents and caregivers and teachers and education staff that know that, but I think many people understand that. Young people, in particularly, have been stalled in their employment and training opportunities, and older adults as well, who maybe in their fifties may find it hard to get back to the workforce. These are all really, really serious things. And we've had businesses that have disappeared or will struggle to get back on their feet. Um, so those things, I think we can recover from that, but it will take time. And have we, what have we learned? Well, everybody's learned about what the R number is and what public <laughs> health is. Um, maybe, maybe we're in a better position to train the public health physicians and workforce of the future. But I hope we've learned that we are resilient, <clears throat> that solidarity does matter, that we have a contribution to make and we shouldn't be as selfish. Um, maybe that's something we can reflect on. Yeah. I mean, that thing that you said as well about what we've all gone through, I mean, I guess it's recognising that actually, as a nation, we've gone through a trauma and normally we would then try and heal that. And I think there is part of that. It's not a trauma in the way that the former Yugoslavia or parts of sub-Saharan Africa or Syria, where you've had horrific conflict, which, you know, some of our population remember world wars, but, but a dwindling few. Is a different kind of crisis, but it is a crisis. So if you look at people who work in psychology, people who are providing support and interventions, charities, etc., with young people, with adults, people who are bereaved, they, they all need support. And maybe we need a national some kind of national discussion about and maybe what well, I guess I would say we need some opportunities to reflect and maybe we should find some days next year when you know we can we can do that as a country and um and and just final point there's a lot of division still within scottish society and political issues coming up on the horizon aren't there that um people will be not have a common view on and i hope that they will not overtake us and be a focus i hope we'll have a time to reflect on this As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.